BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, soccer can unite a country, but in Iran, women cannot even enter the national stadium. For decades, they've been banned from attending games, and by extension, they've been banned from standing side by side as equal Iranians, says podcast host Shima Oliayi. Banned from the joy, the exhilaration, the love in watching a game. But generations of women have defied Iran's ban, and some are featured in Oli's new 30 for 30 podcast, Pink Card, all about the profound connections between soccer, feminism, and freedom. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Since 1981, with few exceptions, women in Iran have been banned from attending men's soccer games, from even setting foot in the national stadium. That's despite the country's deep love of the game and a national team that had an impressive World Cup showing this year. Everyone from old to young, women, men, everyone get involved. That's from a new ESPN 30 for 30 podcast called Pink Card, where women's struggle for human rights in Iran and for the right to go to a soccer game are at the heart of the podcast. Shima Oliai is its host and creator, and she joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Shima. Hi, thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. Your podcast is about so many things. The women who, at great risk, fought back against an oppressive regime in the soccer ban, but it's also just about an absolute love of soccer as well, and about your mom, who is pretty obsessed with the game and has played for decades. I'm wondering if you could just start by talking about what soccer means to her. Yeah, so, um, you know, I I started my reporting this story because 
I was actually reporting another podcast called Dolly Parton's America. And in the South, I was meeting all um, so many working class women who were so fierce and so full of personality and so strong. And as I was reporting in the field, I started crying about my cousins and my grandmas, and I didn't really understand where the emotion was coming from and why I was connecting so much with the women there and how it was making reminding me of Iran, a place I had never been, huh. which solely lived in my imagination based on the few stories my parents told me being teenagers during the 79 revolution. So at that time, about three years ago, I asked my mom if I could ask her some questions about her childhood, um, especially as a woman um, in Iran. And that's when, you know, um, that's when she kind of became a broken record where I would say, okay, like, um, like, tell me your earliest memory. She says, oh, yes, my brother's needed a goalie. So they said, little Manoush. And I was at this party with my shoes, with my party shoes. And they brought me out into the street. And I was six years old. I became the goalie and I blocked every goal. And they were like, little Manoush, like, you know, so she would light up about that story. And so I heard that story a couple of times. And then I was like, okay, can you give me another story? So then she said, yes, I was at this wedding and we had this amazing cake. And then we all played soccer and then they needed me to score a goal. And then I scored the goal. And anyway, so she just kept repeating these childhood memories of soccer and I could not get her off of soccer. It would like, it would start in any kind of place and it would always end up in the street playing the game. And the uh -huh. more and more, the more and more I talked to people in Iran, you know, they shared soccer is played on every street corner. It's just, a, it's a part of the culture um it's a part of the love of of one of the loves of childhood and then you know my mother was a freshman in college in 79 and protesting in the streets for the revolution and when the university shut down her parents got very afraid for her future and she was the youngest child in her family. So they shipped her off to America, to Reno, Nevada, where she had an uncle living there. And that she was actually sent out of Iran the same day the Shah left, which was just a mystic coincidence. But um, she basically missed everything else that happened in Iran after Khomeini took over, which he took over the country the next month after she left. Mm. So um, basically the series became a journey to understanding what happened to the women in my family or to any of the women in Iran after my mother left. And also why was soccer the memory she could not let go? Why was that the one thing that she loved speaking about? Like, why wasn't there anything else? And that led me to many women and young women, three generations of rebellious kind of freedom mm -hmm. fighters, which yeah. I was very surprised to find. Well, I love that the fact that your mom has played on club teams in Reno for the past 40 years and that she does not have the association with soccer after the ban. Um, but you talk about this incredible 
love of soccer that runs deep in Iran. And as you say, look at the history of the game and how it came to mean so much to the country. Can you tell us a little bit of that history? Yeah, so it's interesting because soccer was introduced and reinforced in schools during the 50s and 60s. It was seen as part of the modernization of the country, mm-hmm. you know, um, and before that, wrestling was kind of the national beloved sport, but it moved from an individual sport to more of a team sport in terms of um, trying to enforce a new national identity attached to some kind of form of physical exercise in the country. And so as soccer is spreading through throughout Iran, so are women's rights. That was also a part of the trajectory of the Shah's reign. And so women are playing soccer, men are playing soccer, they are playing soccer together. Um, and I think this is a universal experience about soccer. I think countries love the sport because it feels like a great equalizer. You can play without very with very little money. You can play on dirt, grass, asphalt. You can make a ball out of anything. Um, you know, even paper mache, there's, you know, pictures of, I saw pictures of that in Iran. Um, you can make a goal out of like, put a rock here, put a rock there. So it's kind of, it can, it can be improvised in any space and you can have two players, 10 players. So it's a, it's an easy childhood game to fall in love with, but also on the international stage, you have a chance at winning. And one of the girls, Zainab Sahafi, who loves soccer, she looks at soccer in very poetic terms. Um, she told me soccer gave her hope that even a weak team, if they're united, can overcome a team that's much stronger. So I think also in terms of countries that are not America or not an imperial power, I think um, across across the globe, the World Cup is very exciting because for once your team can perhaps beat the country that has infiltrated your country or taken power from your country. And so in that way, it's very exciting in terms of unifying the nation. And it feels like the the proudest symbol of national identity. There's like nothing bad you can say about a great soccer team. Um and it yeah, it just makes you feel it's it's the underdogs coming alive and feeling so much joy and hope. And Iran's soccer team does very well up until the 70s. And then the revolution basically hijacks all of the sport, the focus on the sport or the focus of even national pride. It's just at that point, um, a lot of chaos in the streets. Um, Khomeini is flown back in from Paris after having been in exile for many years. He takes control of the country and then women's rights are stripped one by one, but very quickly in 80, just in 1980. So 79 is the revolution. 1980, Iraq invades Iran. Um, over oil, which is also why soccer was in Iran, because the British um, colonists set up a colony in Abaddon um, to extract oil from Iran and to control the oil resources, and they brought soccer with them. So kind of geopolitical history always played into the sport and what happened to the sport, either the spread of it or also the diminishing of focus on the sport. Yet in the late 90s, 
Iran is finally coming back from the war, um, coming back from the economic depression and the emotional depression that the war had created, which had ended in 88. And <laughs> this is actually not in the podcast, but there was an um, very religious coach of the national team in by the time you get to the late 90s, um, I think throughout all of the 90s. And by 97, Iran's team is so bad um, that, <laughs> that people actually started protesting because they were losing so bad going into the World Cup, like the World Cup qualifiers. They just kept losing game after game. So actually, um, they fired the religious coach replaced him with a Brazilian coach and he got two games. He did. Okay. He brought the team up a little bit, but it's the third game. This coach coached for, with the Iranian national team with it, with a necktie, which was very taboo at that time because it was seen as a Western symbol. Um, he is coaching the 97 game between Iran and Australia. And that's that, that is that moment that you hear in that clip that you played earlier in this interview. Um, that game that he's coaching, which is in Australia, um, is so, it's still bad. Like Iran is just <laughs> getting, like, they're just getting annihilated. But the last three minutes, as the entire country of Iran is listening or watching, and girls are like, one girl got out of her Islam school to go watch it, and one girl is hiding a radio in her college class, who I interviewed, and they're in the series. Um, in the last three minutes of that game, Iran, in what can only be described as a miracle, school scores two goals. And because it's a tie, and it's um, not on Iran's home turf, and because they'd already just tied another game, you know, soccer um, logistics, Iran advances to the World Cup and Australia gets kicked out. And everyone in the country goes wild. Girls are outside, men, boys, men are outside. People are jumping on cars. There are parties in every city across the country. And for the girls who had not lived in pre-revolution Iran, they had never seen that kind of joy, that kind of unity, and that kind of freedom. Women tore off their headscarves. There's dancing. Dancing and singing was illegal <laughs> in public. Um, people are dancing and singing. And uh, it was it was just like a wild, you know, exciting moment. And the yeah. girls who experienced it never forgot the power of soccer. Wow. We are hearing about the incredibly dedicated soccer fans of Iran and about Iranian girls and women. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Shima Oliayi this hour, host and creator of the podcast Pink Card. It's about Iranians love us soccer and also the women who have defied Iran's ban prohibiting women from entering soccer stadiums. What are your questions or comments for Shima Oliayi? What do you think about the relationship between sports and nations, sports and protest? And if you have memories of Iran before, during, or after the revolution, the 79 revolution, Please share your reflections. Email forum at kqed.org. Post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or call us at 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. Shima, before the break, you were just talking about the excitement of the win or the tie in the Australia-Iran game in 97 and how women and girls for the first time who had not seen what pre-revolution Iran was like got to experience some taste of it. Your podcast really does give a visceral sense of what life was like before and after 1979. And especially through the words of a woman you interview, a writer, a journalist named Meringiz Carr, um, who I think you call an Iranian legend, You know, she talks about how Tehran was just this incredible fashion center that at school women were being told that they were the next generation that would continue to um, basically elevate the status of women in all sectors. Um, But she tells you this incredibly vivid story of after 1979, seeing the way that the police, the morality police treat mannequins. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, about the way the police insisted on a methodical destruction of these female mannequins? Yeah, so, you know, one of the questions in looking back at Iran and looking at the women of Iran was, you know, growing up in the West, growing up in America, I saw a lot of um, images of Middle Eastern women or stereotypes that made it seem as if they were passive um, or perhaps weak. And that wasn't so not true in my family. You know, everyone's afraid of my grandma. She's the most intimidating person. Um, Her name is actually Iran, which is quite interesting too um but she was named after the country but my mother too was so fierce you can hear that and funny mm-hmm. um in the podcast um and but i did have this question then how if if iranian women are so strong how do they get forced into submission overnight if they helped lead the revolution if they stood in front of the tanks alongside the men in 78 and 79 how do they get all their rights like basically rescinded extremely into such an extreme form very quickly? And what I discovered is through Merengi's story is, you know, the women did not just accept the changes. 
So Khomeini um, gets put into power in February of 79, and very quickly, certain things start to change. So one of the first things was they kicked out all women judges because they said that women did not have the moral capability to be able to judge, including Shireen Abadi, who has since won a Nobel Peace Prize. So I think with that action, it's very clear that the Islamic regime knew that its top political competitor was the population of Iranian women. Um, I think this is part of the reason they were targeted. But that happens, and then the marriage laws start to change, but none of that is very visceral. So the the a few weeks later, they announce, it's actually less than a few weeks later, three weeks after Khomeini is in power, there's an announcement that if you have a government um, sanctioned job, you will from then on have to wear a hijab. The women immediately organize. This actually gets announced the day before International Women's Day. So they were already planning to meet to celebrate the revolution and to celebrate their part in it. And instead, that celebration on March 8th, 1979 becomes a revolt, a protest, and tens of thousands of women, both veiled and unveiled, march in the streets to say, you can't tell us what to do. We will not be the first to lose our freedom. And they march for four days straight. And by the fourth day, the clerics make an announcement saying they take back the statement and the mandate. And so the women felt very triumphant and very confident that if they got another dictator, even by surprise with Khomeini, that they could kick him out too. And this is when the morality police really takes on its stronghold in the country. But instead of targeting women who are far too powerful to be ousted or abused at this moment, instead, what they do is they start infiltrating the thousands of shops in Iran's capital, Tehran. And Merengiz, this writer who I interviewed in episode two, she describes walking down the street with her daughter and they observe these police with their guns, running into a shop and harassing the store owner and saying, look, this mannequin does not have a hijab on. And Merengiz and her daughter were laughing. They thought it was so funny. Look, they have no power. They can't do, force us to do anything. So all they can do is bully the inanimate mannequins. Yeah, actually, we have a, a clip of that moment. Let me just play it for our listeners just to get another sense of your podcast. This is Merengue's. I was laughing. My daughter was laughing. We couldn't understand that, oh, this is message. What is the meaning of that? The joy was forbidden, basically. That is how they control you. Yeah, so talk about the message that Merengues is witnessing. I also want to give you a visual, too, because today when we look at mannequins, they are basically like made out of some kind of cloth and there isn't a lot of human-like details on them. Like if you go to an American shop, for instance, but... In Iran in 79, the mannequins have eyes painted on. They have eyelashes that are three-dimensional. They have long caramel-colored hair. They have wigs. They have lipstick. They have nail polish. They are human-like. 
they are far more human-like than we know, than like we would imagine based on today's modern shops. So they start to erase the color from the mannequins' faces. Every day when the store owners would come, they would complain about another, you know, feature on the mannequin. So then they started complaining about the nail polish. So they erased the nail polish. Then they complained about the breasts. So they cut off the breasts of the mannequin. So only coils could be seen. Um, and then eventually this escalates. I, I won't give it away, but it escalates in quite a brutal way to what they in what they do to the mannequins. Yeah. But it's not just the torture and the dismantling of the mannequins, which is so horrific. It's also the color changes. So if you think about it, if you have to re-uniform half of, your, of a nation's population, a lot of clothes have to start being manufactured. So it's this coarse, black, dark gray, dark blue fabric that is that is part of the uniform. There is no more color. That's a part of joy. And so um, you heard in that second clip, um, after Merengues was describing her and her daughter laughing, um, Azar Nafisi, you know, spoke about part of the reason that this happened was um, the regime was remaking women in their image that they could then control. We, the women then are dehumanized. They become a figment of the Islam regime's imagination that this is natural for Iranian women, that this is correct. And this, you know, this is also where women's bodies become a symbol and also a, a very powerful symbol in Iran of whether or not the regime is doing well. So if the body stays submissive, the regime is doing great. If the bodies mm. rebel, if those women's bodies rebel, if they are full of color, if they are free, if they are in public spaces, if they emote, if they, if they basically, if they do anything that makes them human, it's actually, it's showing that the regime is getting weaker. This is where the power of women starts becoming undeniable, but also their oppression. Yes. Um, yes. Well, this listener writes in, my parents emigrated from Iran, and when I was little, my mom would take me back to Tehran to see family. That was in the mid-70s, before the revolution, and I remember my super glamorous cousins dressed to the nines in spiky heels and amazing dresses, and the pivot that took place is just unbearable to think about. After the revolution, my mom would go back on her own. She was a doctor, and she'd dress in hijab and chador for the visits. It's hard to comprehend. We're talking with Shima Oliyai, host and creator of the podcast Pink Card. It's about women who defied Iran's ban prohibiting women from entering soccer stadiums and about women's fight against a regime, a fight against the oppression of the regime. In, it's about protests, current and past. And your listeners can also join the conversation as well by posting your thoughts or reactions to what you're hearing on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum by calling 866-733-6786 or by emailing questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Reza in Danville. Hi, Reza. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, it sounds like a really interesting podcast. I'm definitely going to check it out. 
one of the things that I'm curious about, um, a lot of Western media coverage has been really silent um, on the sanctions, American sanctions since 79, and the eight-year war that followed immediately after. I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts would be had the sanctions not been there and, you know, the country didn't go to war immediately for eight years, maybe things wouldn't have been as strict. Because, I mean, there have been moments when there have been, you know, moments of reform um, and opening up. But it, I just feel like all that's happening in Iran cannot be, you know, divorced from the sanctions. It, it, it's mm. hugely crippling what happened. And we don't talk about that in Western media. And I just feel like it's it just you're missing a lot of context hmm. by Reza, not including that. Thanks. Should we be talking about that more, Shima? What do you think about what Reza's saying? In in the first episode of the series, um, I really, which I was a little bit worried that I was going to get too in the weeds in terms of history because it is a, it is um, a podcast on ESPN 30 for 30. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to get too far afield, but I did bring up the economic state of Iran, which was thriving at the time and was basically under the UK's control and the USA's control. And it was the Shah who had actually started fighting back about the oil contracts that led to, you know, the him not being so favored by Western imperial powers. And they are a large reason that Khomeini was able to get back into the country and was supported by them. I mean, America put Khomeini on the cover of Time magazine in 79 as the person of the year. Mm. So there is a lot of economic under like uh, there's an economic underlying story here between yeah. the U.S., Iran and the U.K., which was also quite epic in thinking about the fact that all three of those countries were going to play in this World Cup. This is, of course, this this was um, this, you know, that that was actually it's like pulled out out of a lottery at the FIFA World Congress. And at that point, Masa Amini had not been murdered. So it was a moment to think about, oh, wow, Iran has stayed under control because of now sanctions and all kinds of like ways to ways to disarm them economically because of the necessity to control the country um, yeah. and to control whoever is leading the country. So, of course, that matters. Um, it's also I, the reason... So I do go into it into episode one um, from uh, quite a few angles. At the same time, there is this, there's, there is so much trauma in Iranians and Iranian Americans about what happened and, and what was lost, like families were lost, homelands were lost, um, any kind of generational, like financial, like foundation was lost. My parents started with nothing in America. So there's also this kind of nostalgia or, or romanticization of what if this, then this would be okay. What if this, and then this would be okay. What mm. if this, and then, and everything, of course, you know, as mm. we look at history, history is very complex. There are many factors creating a moment that causes an effect that becomes sometimes irreversible or takes a century or more to change. However, 
the more I looked at every way Iran's history was connecting to the geopolitical history and connecting to economic relationships, I kept coming back to kind of the soul of the series, which is if you dismantle the rights of half of your population, if you have gender apartheid in your country, the country is going to suffer. There is, they have, they have basically handicapped the country. So half of its vital population is silenced, yeah. you know, is kept hidden. There is something about that, that I think no matter how much you want to blame other countries or look at this and this and that, which of course it, it, that also creates so much pain and suffering in the country, poverty, drought, there's so many, I mean, even climate in the country is impacting what's happening. But if you if you have done this to half of your population, that to me is the place to start. Let's look at that. What yeah. is going on? I'm struck by how there were some points when you say that you met people who kind of wondered why you would focus on soccer, the soccer stadium yeah. ban with such issues, poverty, the, the repression, and so on. But something you said earlier about how the battle for women's rights, the efforts initially to oppress, is a battle for symbols, it really sounds like the soccer stadium and the soccer ban is a symbol as well, both of the repression, but also of the the fight, the fight back against the repression as well. Yes, Merengi says this. She's in in that same um, episode about the mannequin. She says, "Without social freedom, women cannot think about political freedom." So, you know, the political prisons in Iran are filled with female activists and free like right human rights lawyers um people that could be fighting sanctions or fighting for better economic um growth in the country and could be international ambassadors those women are put into prison and so the reason that symbols um it's it, yeah it's hard to describe except if, if you've lived under a dictatorship if a country is filled with oppression and censorship what ends up happening is that the way that the fight happens is kind of a silent battle. Um, and, you know, the regime does make the mannequins a symbol of what will happen to women, which spreads fear. Without having to address women while they're strong directly, they created a culture of fear and terror. Yeah. Then what also happens is when you remove women from the national stadium, actually, this is quite cruel, what ends up happening. Um, and, and we're coming we're... right up to a break right now, Shima. So hold that thought and we'll get to it right after. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Pink Card, an ESPN 30 for 30 podcast by podcast host and creator Shima Oliayi about Iranians' love of soccer, about women who have defied Iran's ban prohibiting women from entering soccer stadiums, and where we are today. Shima, just before the break, you were talking about how important the soccer stadium ban was as part of the regime's oppressive practices. So yeah, can you talk about the rationale behind that? So once women became a symbol um, of how the regime is doing um, in terms of if they are free or in a, or submissive, outside forms um, or outside, you know, um, monuments in the country become new symbols. So streets are renamed, um, but what becomes very, becomes like a cruel moment in in the process of rescinding women's rights and basically eviscerating all of them is in 1981, after the women now have been forced into submission and are wearing full full length pants, full long sleeve shirts, neck covered, full chador. They now in their new uniform, all in black, they arrive at the stadium, the national stadium, um, to watch a soccer game, which up until that point they had been allowed to do. And the guards at the gate tell them, you are not allowed inside, that women have now been banned from all soccer games all across the country in any stadium. The women protest saying, you know, please don't do this like there there's no law you know they just and the guards then laugh at them and say actually this national stadium has also been renamed it is no longer called Adi Amer it's called Azadi Stadium and as you might know now because of today's protests Azadi means freedom so they took the biggest national symbol of unity that soccer stadium Azadi, uh, Azadi Stadium, and they basically gave it the name that the women, the the protest chant that women used it, on March eighth, nineteen seventy nine. So it's just, you know, I think at that point, I think all hope had been lost, and even at that point, the Iran Iraq War had already started. So women also become a tool to help, you know, advance the country during that time. And women were asked to follow the new mandates in order to keep unity in the country because so many young men were dying in the war. So women are then guilted into being obedient in order to in order to honor their sons, their husbands, and their fathers who were fighting in a war. 
But that stadium never loses its power as now a symbol of how women's freedom has been retracted. Mm. And later it has a rebirth in terms of how women are going to start to get their freedom back. Yeah. And they, they target the stadium. Right. It is pretty amazing. You, We meet two women, Sarah and Nasreen, for whom their former protest is to be very visible as women at the stadium to get media attention using white scarves. We also meet another Zainab, whose form of protest is to disguise herself and to get around the bands and to dress as a man. It is a range of different forms of protest, even Merengue's protest, to to write about and communicate what is actually happening. Let me go to caller Golden in Sunnyvale, who's been waiting. Hi, Golden. Thanks so much. What would you like to say? Golden, you're on. Oh, maybe we'll see if we can get Golden back. Um, but in the meantime, I do, Shima, want to turn to the current protests um, <laughs> because, you know, this podcast, you were working on this um, as these protests are erupting. One of the things that was really kind of shocking and chilling was when you were telling the story about the mannequins and how the morality police came to terrorize the shopkeepers, they began by asking why, or they didn't begin, but after the hijab requirement, they began by asking why an inch of hair could still be seen through the mannequin's veil. And of course, that's what Masa Amini was arrested for in September, beaten to death while in custody. And so when I think about something that you described in 81 and something that just happened, I wonder if you feel any progress has been made, even as you tell these stories of incredibly brave women. What, if any, progress has been made, do you think? I think there's an outside story, right? There's a public story, and then there's the private secret spaces story. And what the podcast does is it takes you inside the secret spaces, especially of the last 15, 17 years of women organizing and girls, even teen girls, finding ways to test the power of the dictator and how much they can get back. And so even though hmm. it looks so horrific at this time and what is happening, daily executions yes. happening, even as you observe that, the one thing I really learned from the Iranian women and girls that I interviewed is that they kept the movement alive for 43 years. It was not just that whatever was happening in 79 that has sustained. Instead, it's gotten deeper. The wisdom grew. The courage grew. The tenacity the patience, the, the ingenious ways in which they're able to battle, you know, an oppressor who lies, who pretends like everything's okay. Oh, there's no more morality police. All of those lessons they learned in 79, 80, and 81, where they believed what was told to them because they felt powerful. 
the level of wisdom has exponentially expanded and it's in every generation of women in Iran. There is no going back. The, the young people I'm speaking to right now in the country, they tell me that every day. There is no going back. Masa Amini changed everything. But it was these millimeter by millimeter daily acts that created this kind of moment. Hmm. Young people are not willing to have their rights stripped anymore. They're not willing to look the other way. They are not afraid of putting their own bodies in the line of fire. The 43-year-old experiment to see if an Islamic regime could rule this country has failed. That's what we're seeing. But it was these women, it's not just the soccer stadium girls, but they are a perfect microcosm of all the secret spaces in Iran that stayed alive and how they stayed alive. And I love that about Sara, Nasreen, Mabuba, Zainab, all of her friends. They brought the joy too. That's why the soccer became so powerful. Soccer also is coupled with joy and screaming and emoting and cheering and singing and laughing. Um, all of that was coupled together. You cannot sustain a movement if there's no joy. So I think that was another lesson I learned. Not only are they stronger than they were 40 years ago, they are, there are more people united. All the women across generations have seen and learned these lessons and they have been passed down and they understand that there is beauty to the joy. There is beauty to social freedom, to feeling the wind in your hair. And that joy is coupled with their sense of justice. They have such a fierce sense of justice. You know, even as the September protests began, and I had been working on this for three years and I was finishing it and I thought I was finished and I'm like, oh my God, now I, oh wow. Okay, so I just, I was like so happy for the Iranian girls inside. Like, this is the moment, like, this is, this is gonna be your victory, you know, which is still yet to be played out. We are still in the midst of a revolution. And as that was happening, I did think, you know, um, I thought back to March of this year, 2022, women showed up to a game in Mashhad and were pepper sprayed and beaten. Um, and the next week, FIFA World Congress met and no one mentioned the brutality in Iran. Hmm. And I called Zainab, who's still living in exile to this day, cannot go back to Iran. I called her to ask, you know, at the FIFA World Congress, they pulled out Iran against UK versus the US. And I thought for sure she was going to be so excited and say, yes, this is the time for Iran to like win over the imperial powers, you know, all of that, all of that geopolitical love and pride that plays out at the World Cup. And Zainab, I would arguably say, is the biggest soccer fan on the planet. I that's, I mean, I would maybe one of the white scarves would argue with me, but I think that she just she gave up her whole life because she loves soccer um and when i called her she said that the iranian team should not even play mm. and that moment i i thought wow looking back i thought oh was are the soccer stadium women what's was their story and was where each of them were at in march of 2022 of this year should that have told me 
that the revolution was coming sooner than I thought. And are, are they the canaries in the coal mine in Iran? Like, were they the kind of the indicator that this is no longer going to work anymore, that even soccer cannot overshadow women's rights? It, it's it, too many people have lost too much, including their lives, which you hear about in the podcast, who ends up dying because of this movement. Yes. We're talking with Shima Oliyai, host and creator of the podcast, the ESPN 30 for 30 podcast, Pink Card. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Golden. I believe we have Golden back. Hi. Are you with us, Golden? Hi. Hi. Good morning. Yes, I am. Go right ahead. Thank you. So um, there was this thing regarding our own experiences. When um, the revolution happened, I was in, uh, I was just nine year old and we had uh, availability of all the sports to us. But soccer was not something really popular in my uh, generation. And um, it was really popular in my father's generation. Um, they had tickets to the um, to front seats in the stadiums, and they would ask us if we, we wanted to go, and we would refuse to go. But we were like in the stadium for tennis and for water polo and uh, for basketball. So that was really amazing. Versus after the revolution um, happened and women were banned from uh, stadiums, how they wanted to go in, and how when we had the chance. We never showed any kind of interest for uh, football. Football um, polo was um, learned from Iran by England, and England brought soccer. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandfather's generation, they used to go to France for studying. They brought water polo and uh, tennis. So mm-hmm. it was sort of like um, learning everything from the, the other countries. And thanks to actual American um soccer players, the women, that Iranian uh, girls got the guts to start playing soccer and showing themselves and being sort of like pioneer in their own uh, region. But for us, it was just never anything more than, it was just a street people's uh, sport, which was available to anyone without any spending any money. And um, after the revolution, it became a tool that we were just sort of like supporting them uh, because I was not in Iran. We were supporting yeah. them and uh, sort of like sub- uh, remembering the country. But yeah. we were, we suffered. We we were raised with security. We were raised with um, protection. We were raised with um, having equality and everything. And all of a sudden these people come and to morality police would come to 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old uh, kids on the street and push sharp uh, object to their faces because we didn't have um, a scarf or we had loose scarf. Yeah. Well, and well, I go- remember at yeah. the beginning, yeah, at the beginning, we, uh, we, we they only gave us three colors. They gave us black, dark yeah. blue, and brown to mm. wear. And we started wearing red scarves. Yeah. And that really killed them. Really well, killed them. And then that's, yeah. Golden, I, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing your own experience of what we've been talking about, which is just that very visceral shift for for women. Um, and I do remember, Shima, how you mentioned those those colors and and the symbolism of those colors as well. 
I do, we just have a couple minutes left, and I do just want to bring it back to your own experience of soccer here. You say early on in the podcast, and you mentioned it at the beginning of the program, that of all the keepsakes your mother could have taken with her from Iran and tried to pass down to you, language, history, so on, she keeps talking about soccer and passes down soccer. And then you talk about how when you watch a soccer game with your family, you say that it is a moment when you can drop the hyphen in your identity of Iranian-American. And I wonder if you could just share what you mean by that. I think um, because of, you know, the images of Iran that were seared in public memory because of the revolution, a lot of them were images of just men screaming in the streets. Like that's what I would see on the news as a kid. And that terrified me. Like I was terrified of Iran. And I mean, I was terrified of screaming men in the streets, which if that's attached with a subtitle Iran on my TV screen, I'm going to get scared of wherever my parents came from, according to American media. And so there wasn't a lot of pride in we're from this place, you know, this was so great. We And my parents didn't have a lot of nostalgic feelings for pre-revolutionary Iran either. I had family yes. members killed on both my father's side and my mother's side. I had an and killed by both the Shah and killed by Khomeini's, um, yes. you know, police. So I'm just saying, you know, this is where a lot of, I don't romanticize anything either, mm-hmm. but I do see I can easily track where women's rights changed. And it's very clear to see how they changed from 50 to 60 to 70 to 80s until till today. But um, I think when the Iran played the U.S. in the 98 World Cup, the Iranian players brought white roses to the American players. And they had been told, do not show unity with America, with the U.S. You know, there was so much hatred between both political part, like the political leaders of both countries, but especially, you know, the the team had been warned and the team did not listen. The Iranian team did not listen and they brought white roses. And that was when I felt pride as an Iranian kid, Iranian-American kid. And then they also won. So they did the right thing. They went against the dictator of the country at that time, and they still won the game. And that's what I was hoping could happen this time around. But I think it's a longer journey now, and it's yeah. really the women's story. But 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 a moment when you could just embrace fully your Iranian identity. Shima, thank you so much for bringing us this podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Check it out. It's Pink Card. Shima Oliari is host and creator. <sighs> Susie Britton produced today's segment. The forum team also includes Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, Marlena Jackson Rotondo, and Susan Davis. Our engineers, Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, and Jim Bennett. Interns, Lulu Ralda and Palsy Kelly Campos. Ethan Tobin Lindsay and Chief Content Officer Holly Kernan. And you, our listeners, have a great weekend. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.